we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome back to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikori, and I'm executive director of the Center. And this week, we're pleased to welcome Amy Wax to the podcast. Amy is a law professor, the Robert Mundheim Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and also was a practicing physician for a number of years. So she's at least twice as smart as I am because I haven't been able to do either one of those things. And what we want to talk about, though, is an article she co-authored a few years back on low-skilled immigration and the effects it's having on the United States and how we might reform and change our low-skilled immigration policies. The link to it will be in the show notes, but it was in American Affairs, the journal called American Affairs, and it was called Low-Skill Immigration, a Case for Restriction that she co-authored with Jason Richwine, who's now on our staff, then was not. Amy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And one of the first things that really struck me in the article was you went into some detail on the academic work that's already been done on employer preferences for immigrants, Hispanics, sometimes immigrant or not, but immigrants in general over American workers, particularly preference over black American workers, but not just that. It was American workers in general. I was just wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about what you guys found and wrote about. Yes, there is an extensive ethnography, I think we would call it, because it's studies that go to individuals on the ground and actually ask them about their experiences and their impressions. But there is a fairly extensive ethnography from scholars, mostly in the 1990s and before, not, not a lot since, for interesting political reasons, I think, where social scientists go and talk to employers and ask them about their preferences for hiring, which kinds of employees they look at, which kinds of employees they prefer. And there are a number of scholars who've done this work. We document in fairly great detail some of the scholars and some of the research in this area. Initially, a lot of this work was directed at trying to understand American black employment patterns and high unemployment rates among blacks. But the scholars ended up talking to managers and, and business owners about workers across the board. And what they discovered, and this is a pretty consistent pattern, uh, is that they almost uniformly expressed positive views about immigrant workers. And here we're talking about people who were essentially born in other places, and especially Hispanics and uh, Asians. So their favorite workers were recent immigrants of Hispanic and Asian origin. Their second favorite was native-born whites, and then 
coming up last was native-born blacks. And this pecking order of preference was very consistent and repetitive. And what they said about immigrants is pretty uniformly flattering, that they're very hardworking, that they are diligent, persistent. They will put up with a lot of hardship, fairly adverse conditions. They don't complain. They don't sue you. They're not entitled. And of course, the kicker here is that they are talking almost exclusively about low-skilled workers because that represents most of the population of immigrant workers. Low-skilled workers doing basic jobs in transportation and hospitality, construction, outside work, pretty much anything you could think of that low-skilled workers do. And they were very upfront and unabashed and candid about their their preference of the virtues of these kinds of workers. And the bottom line, which was that they would seek out and hire these workers over native-born whites and other people who had been in this country for a fairly long time. So I think there's very little doubt, if we look back at this body of work, that this preference existed and that employers were willing to be very candid and upfront about it. Yeah, it's interesting. And the key point here in this research is this wasn't immigration research. In other words, this wasn't even necessarily what the researchers thought they were going to find. Correct. It, it sort of developed out of their findings. Right. This was very much research about racial differences, racial difficulties. Really, they were looking into bias and prejudice. And what they ended up doing is shedding light on attitudes towards immigrants. Kind of inadvertently almost. Inadvertently. Sort of, they dumbed That's into right. it in a sense. So, um, and in a sense, that is kind of the way research is supposed to work. In other words, you're not supposed to know necessarily what you're going to find. Exactly. Um, uh, and actually, I was struck by the consistency of it. I mean, you cited in this piece one example after another of this kind of research. It really was kind of striking. What does that mean then for American workers? What are the consequences for them? You know, whatever the source of this pecking order, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who would disagree about where it comes from. Is it just irrational prejudice versus is it realistic? Is it a form of realism? Does it reflect the actuality? And my own take on it is that there is a, quite a bit of realism to it. What it means in the most basic way is that immigrants will be preferred as employees. They will be hired over other groups. And in a broader sense, that means that having a very liberal attitude towards low-skill immigration as a national policy will de facto end up making it harder for low-skill American workers to find jobs. They will be pushed aside in favor of low-skill immigrants. So I think, to me, one important implication of these observations is that it tells us something about some of the negative and detrimental effects of a high levels of low-skill immigration. And it creates, I mean, one could be sympathetic to business owners. We can understand them going after the workers that they think are best. But there's a kind of negative feedback loop that I think is triggered by this pattern. If immigrants are hired over American workers because American workers are thought to 
not quite be as desirable or not have the habits and abilities that employers are looking for, then it kind of discourages American workers because it gives them less experience, less opportunity to work and perhaps develop these skills. They get pushed aside, and that might cause their skills or their determination to deteriorate further. So I think we can see a negative feedback loop developing here. And if American workers become less desirable, then that just enhances the pressure that the business sector exerts on politicians to bring in additional waves of immigrants, low-skill immigrants, in order to fill the jobs that they need done. So it's kind of a vicious circle, in a sense, is another way of putting it. Yes. It's just ongoing immigration kind of contributes to some Americans withdrawing from the job market or not being as good workers, which then contributes to pressure for more immigration, and it kind of feeds on itself. Exactly. So I think there really was a, a fair amount of evidence in this literature that, that something like that vicious circle is now occurring. And you can see the current rhetoric reflecting that. This whole idea of jobs Americans won't do, I think, is a euphemism. It's a euphemism for a decline in work ethic in a way, a, a, a whole set of cultural attitudes that says to American workers, well, you don't really need to take these jobs. Uh, we can find other people to do them. The fact that you're stepping aside and not stepping up, it's no big deal. We can make our peace with that as a society. But the problem with that, of course, is that it's ultimately bad for America and bad for our Native workers to drop out of the workforce. And let me add that there is evidence, there is demographic evidence from Nick Eberstadt at AEI and other people that low-skill workers, that is workers who have dropped out of high school or in some cases maybe are high school graduates but have no advanced degrees, that those individuals have reduced their work effort, especially males. The percentage of males who are not in the workforce and not looking for work in that contingent is at an all-time high today. And of course, you know, there's a whole COVID story we could tell about that too, because I think COVID has made it even more pronounced. Yeah, but it was happening even before COVID. I mean, it definitely was happening even before COVID. Right. It was well on its way. And this has ramifications in all sorts of social sectors. It depresses the number of marriages, family formation becomes very difficult. I mean, we could talk about all of the perverse negative effects of men, prime age men, dropping out of the workforce. Now, employers, like you had suggested, are preferring immigrant workers. And I think it's fair to say, and you know, I don't know what the proportion would be, but it's fair to say some of their complaints are legitimate, others are not. Right. So I'm not even sure there's how we would decide that. But the point is, while some of it is true, in many cases, it isn't true. And what the people who presumably are most being affected by this are the ones who could be drawn into successful, productive life of work. In other words, they're not lost causes, to put it crudely. 
but aren't getting that chance. And in a sense, the potential is they sort of, they kind of withdraw and are alienated from the job market altogether. Right. I mean, I think the key to understanding this is that it's not a static situation. There are interactive effects. So there may well be something to the fact that American workers are less desirable workers in many ways, in part because immigrants, they're not in the position to maybe claim the rights and entitlements that Americans would be. There are all sorts of reasons why that might be. But at the end of the day, people are influenced by incentives. They are influenced by their environment. So let's just take employers, right? If employers knew that they could not dip into an endless wave, an endless supply of low-skill workers coming across the border into our country, and they had to find a way to engage and employ American workers as faulty as those workers sometimes are, then they might meet their workers halfway, you know, improve working conditions, perhaps pay them more, you know, and and the workers themselves, hopefully, uh, would respond. And they would perhaps experience less discouragement because they're not being upstaged by immigrant workers. So, you know, it's, it's a very complex, interactive situation. I personally think that at the end of the day, it's better for our country if we try to engage and employ the people who are already here. We kind of owe a primary duty to them to, There's a radical to bring idea. them in. Yeah. That, is a, that is a radical idea. Citizens. It's kind of an American for America first idea, which I think should not in any way be disparaged. But there's another issue which we allude to in the article. Uh, we don't maybe make as much of it as I would have wanted to make, which is the problem of minority unemployment, a male minority unemployment, especially young black men. They have a very high unemployment rate relative to white, certainly relative to immigrant workers. And a high rate of not being in the labor market altogether. Right, of dropping out altogether. Right. Uh, and of course, this is complicated by you know high crime rates, by incarceration, which makes them much less desirable workers in the eyes of many employers. And you know, I have no doubt that some of the complaints that employers have about young black male workers have something to it. So some of my sympathy is with employers who have to make it work with these young men. But honestly, does it make any sense for us as a nation to have 16 or more percent unemployment of young black men who are hanging around on a street corner in the inner city while 20 miles away we have Hispanic crews working on homes, working on construction, doing outdoor maintenance? doing loading of trucks, I mean, doing all of this work while we have this idle native population. I mean, there is something wrong with this picture. To me, it is not a tolerable picture. And it seems to me the policy point, at least the immigration policy point, is immigration is an enabler of that phenomenon. It doesn't necessarily cause it. Stopping immigration won't necessarily just magically fix everything. You all go in the article a number of other policy changes that don't relate to immigration that you're suggesting. But clearly, immigration is enabling 
this harmful development that's not good for these young workers and it's not good for the country overall. Right. I mean, I think what immigration is doing is that it is allowing us to look away and ignore this situation, ignore this problem, and not forcing us to confront it and do something about it, which may be arduous, it may be inconvenient, but at the end of the day, I think would be a positive good. If employers just simply could not fill their jobs and were forced to look in places they wouldn't ordinarily look, for example, you know, recruit young black men who might not seem optimal or suitable at the time, then that would work a lot of improvements across a number of fronts. For example, it would help make black men more marriageable, which is a chronic problem uh, and, you know, leads into the high rates of single parenthood in the black community. I mean, it all sort of stands and falls together, I guess you could say. And one of the points you make in here, too, is that one of the problems that employers have with some workers is they're more likely to fail drug tests. And opioids, et cetera, is what you're talking about. In other words, we're really not talking about a black thing necessarily, although that's maybe where the bigger part of the problem is. We're talking, as Charles Murray put it, Fishtown versus Belmont. In other words, this is a less skilled workers problem in general. J.D. Vance, for instance, has focused on these same kind of what we would think of sometimes as inner city problems, but they exist in Appalachia and elsewhere as well. I mean, and along those lines, one point you made was that some employers also express skepticism about Hispanic American workers. Right. In other words, that uh, if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, I think the problem goes way beyond just historically disadvantaged groups like black men. It it is now infected, you know, the Fishtown contingent, white, less skilled native workers. And yes, the failing of drug tests is a very salient indicator. Transportation companies, trucking companies are always short of workers. And one of the biggest obstacles to hiring is that the workers, the recruits, fail drug tests. They fail drug tests even knowing that they're going to get a drug test. Um, And now with the second and third generation of Hispanic individuals who tend to converge sort of on American patterns, you know, they become in a way perversely assimilated they're viewed as less desirable too. So there just seems to be this general American pattern of decline in work ethic. I have to say that I do fault some of the forces in the larger zeitgeist. I always cringe and shiver when I hear this jobs Americans won't do explanation, this sort of glib explanation that trips off the tongue, because I think it is part of a larger denigration of work and the dignity and the importance of work to a well-ordered life. I really do detect on the left almost a kind of attitude that all work is oppressive, that you know we really shouldn't make people work or make them work too hard, especially if they're you know, people who are somehow disadvantaged, not privileged people. And frankly, just bringing COVID up again, 
that attitude is very much in evidence right now. There was just a, a nice piece in the Wall Street Journal by Daniel Henninger saying, you know, all the handouts and all the COVID benefits seem to have snowballed into this idea that work is just optional. You know, no, no need to work. The government will support you. The government will cut you a check. It built on this discussion even before COVID of this universal basic income, yes, which is something so that, that had been floating around anyway. Andrew Yang kind of made it a big deal. And I just think, nothing to say about Yang, I think he's an earnest guy, but I don't think they understand what the implications of this is. Right. Well, the, the whole universal basic income idea has been around forever, and it just refuses to die. I mean, it keeps coming back and... Whenever it, it does come to the surface, there is always a contingent of people who point out that the uh, unintended consequences and potential perverse effects of letting everybody out of work just have not even begun to be explored. So I would be very, very wary of that kind of proposal. But I think the real, the real manifestation of this idea of work as optional and somehow vaguely oppressive is... AOC's quote, where she says, we need as a country and as a government to support people who can't work or choose not to work. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's a long and way from no... uh, Jamestown where, remember, you know, really work, or, work or starve. Work or yeah, right. Yes, yes. The, so uh, I don't know where people yeah. think that, you know, all these products and services are actually going to come from. They but come from China, I guess, magically. I guess so. You talked about the way employers might respond if we change the rules and they had less access to illegal immigrants or legal low-skilled immigrants. Better wages, different benefits. We've seen some examples. There was a chicken plant a number of years ago was raided. They lost all their people. And what they did is they were in the middle of nowhere, so they started a van service from a nearby town. They were hiring black Americans who didn't have cars because they're relatively poor. And lo and behold, they were able to find people because they rented this van to drive people back and forth. So there's all kinds of things employers can do, but that's specifically relating to their business. One thing I wanted to listen to your thoughts about is what would the political response, maybe the cultural response as well, but political response be to basically making these businesses go cold turkey because they're addicted in a sense. I mean, I think it's fair to call it a kind of addiction. If they can't get their fix, what kind of reforms might you see corporate lobbyist pressure to enact that right now there's really no incentive yeah, to push well, for things? I think the first thing to say right up front is the resistance, uh, the, the outrage and the consternation from the business world would be enormous. Sure. So politically, this is going to be a very, very tough sell. And it's going to come both from the right and the left. I mean, traditionally, the Republicans have been the party of business, and they are extremely sensitive to adverse reactions, making life harder for businesses. A little less, so, a little less so than before, though. I mean, a little less so than before. But and still, I think you're right. That's part of Trumpism, mm -hmm. and it's part of what's caused divisions and you know, disagreement within the Republican camp of the two cheers for capitalism people versus, you know, the three and a half cheers for capitalism <laughs> people, definitely. So I, I think that's a huge uphill battle. 
On the other hand, never doubt that the left is, you know, the stupid party in their own way because they don't really see where their interests lie. But we can go all the way back to Barbara Jordan's committee, that the committee that she chaired on low-skill immigration and immigration in toto. And she recognized, this was decades ago now, that there is no surer route to improving the lot of workers than scarcity of workers. I mean, this is just economics 101. When workers are hard to find and labor is scarce, then businesses have incentives to improve things. It's much harder for them to exploit workers, and they have to use the carrot as well as the stick. You know, so all this complaining about companies like Amazon and other big corporations not paying people a living wage you know, putting the screws on them in terms of work demands and, and rigid schedules and childcare and the like, you would think that the left would put two and two together and see that it is in the interests of workers, the constituency that they claim to represent, to reduce immigration. I think the problem with that, to, you know, turn off the spigot on low-skill Influx. The problem with that is that politically, it's in the Democrats' interest to bring in immigrants, especially from the third world, from more collectivist societies. They tend to look to the government, uh, rely on government, and uh, vote Democratic. So, and it's that- interesting that you know, in the old days, the labor movement was in fact at the forefront of restricting immigration. I mean, of course. During the 1986, during all of that fight over the amnesty bill, the AFL-CIO was actually the main institutional force pushing against amnesty and for tighter enforcement. That's completely, completely flipped now. And I think the left, I think their thinking now is immigration can't be stopped. Open borders is an immutable value now of the left. They'll just, through coercion of the state, make them pay more. That's what this $15 an hour stuff and everything else is about. Right. They think, and and this is really goes to, I think, a deeper sea change in the left and in the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party really has veered off into, I'm going to use the word, a kind of socialistic idea of how government works and how government relates to society. I really feel like the Democratic Party is now captured by progressive forces that have really given up on capitalism. They really do not believe in capitalism as an engine of prosperity and an engine of good government. They really dislike it. They don't believe in it. And that shows itself in this idea, right, that tinkering with supply and demand to get the right mix, no, we're not going to bother with that. We're just going to have government mandates to make sure that everybody gets what they deserve. So in a sense, I mean, both sides are calling for government action. It's just that restrictionists are basically saying we need to limit the inflow and then let the market internally work itself out. And workers will be given a, a stronger hand, basically, Right. Because, whereas the left is saying they want to micromanage each of those things rather than 
create a kind of environment within which the market system works to help poor people. Right. And I think you're on to something here in, in what you're implying, which is, well, it is a choice to honor borders, to have this kind of bedrock idea of nation states instead of this, you know, one world free market libertarian open borders ideal for the economy. That That is a choice. But I think that that is to me, it, it represents a values choice and a pragmatic choice, but I think that that is extremely important because the well-being of our country, our solidarity, our unity, uh, our common purpose really depends on that. And once again, for Trump to bring that into the discussion, I think was, was very shrewd in, in a way and very wise because he recognized in his, his own kind of clumsy way that totally free markets in, in terms of just ignoring borders isn't an optimal arrangement. It does represent on some level an interference with total capitalism, but it's, it's a very honorable and important one. And so immigration restriction is dependent on seeing our nation as a nation and all of the people in it as having common purpose and a common fate, and and that's definitely part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd actually say that's even more important than the critiques of capitalism and what have you on the left, is that the left in our country, I describe it as they're now post-American. I mean, more right. broadly, they're post-national. And I remember I spoke years ago at an event here in D.C. sponsored by the Council on Foreign Relations, and I kind of said my thing. And then one of the CFR guy member from New York, who was a, a vice president at Citibank, I think, if he had just been a member of the Trilateral Commission, it would have been, you know, the whole conspiracy package. He came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, your points are well taken. You're probably right. But I don't really have any more, you know, obligation to somebody in South Central or in Bed-Stuy than I do to somebody in, you know, Montevideo or Kathmandu. And that's, I mean, it's a position. It's a plausible position. It's not like it's empirically incorrect, it's just wrong. I would submit it's immoral, but it's at least, put it this way, it's a different value judgment. Right. And it's not a viable blueprint, yeah, it's not I a, think, yeah, for right. a strong sure. country, the well-being of the people within it. But you are absolutely right. The sort of reductio ad absurdum here is this attitude that patriotism is some kind of bigotry, that there's no reason to prefer the people down the street, the people of your state, the people of your nation, to the people halfway across the world. And I see this attitude manifested by the powers that be in academia. The very own president of my university, Amy Gutman, at one point said, patriotism, America firstism, uh, you know, a pension and a preference for your own. I forget the exact locution. She disparaged it as a form of bigotry. I mean, even my Left-leaning students rolled their eyes at that. But that's a pretty shocking statement. I mean, we have leaders of our major institutions saying stuff like that. It's pretty mainstream now. And quite frankly, there's even people in Congress, I think, who see things that way. So let's button this up with a quote from the just one sentence from your piece on immigration, because you talked at some length, like I said, about the other issues, other policy changes, cultural changes, et cetera. But you finished it with, Quote, 
an essential first step is to turn off the spigot of unskilled foreign workers, unquote. Right. In other words, it's not sufficient to fix the problems that we're facing, but it is a necessary first step. Yes, and, you know, I think it is, it's, uh, it's sort of tough love. It definitely is. There are going to be a lot of people, you know, kind of screaming bloody murder. How can you do this to us? And those are going to be people on the business side for sure. But I do believe our capitalism is robust enough that it will adjust. And when I say turn off the spigot, I mean, what I mean by that is, you know, reduce the levels a lot. I mean, turn them way down. In fact, I would not be averse to a moratorium. I don't really have a problem with that at all. And let me just add that the article was only about low-skill workers, but I would take a second look at workers from top to bottom all across the spectrum because in some ways we're doing the same thing with higher-skilled workers right, or medium-skilled H-1B workers. program and other the millions, things like the that. The proliferation right. of visa programs has the same perverse effects. Right. Well, thank you, Amy. It was great to have you here. Our guest has been Amy Wax, professor of law at University of Penn Law School, and also a physician. So I'll afterwards I'll ask about uh, my about my back hurts, but I don't know if she gives advice anymore, medical advice. Thank you, Amy, and we'll look forward to other work. Immigration, I know, isn't your main area, but I hope you um, well. I have do written some more other articles this. about immigration, so there's Good. one in the Georgetown Journal that people can look up. We'll link to it in the show notes. For my closing commentary, I wanted to talk about a couple of things that happened this week that are related. The president of Haiti was assassinated by what seems to be a mercenary commando team or something. It's not a mob of disgruntled citizens, but it raises the possibility of serious civil disturbances and violence in Haiti, which means people taking to boats and heading for the United States, as well as any other surrounding places. This has happened before, and it may well happen again. We can keep our fingers crossed, but there's a real possibility of it, and that would directly implicate our asylum system. And whether we would grant asylum were people fleeing because they were involved in whatever political problems there were, or was it just people taking advantage of the opportunity or fleeing poverty and disorder in general? This is particularly relevant also because of something that we published this week. Todd Benzman, one of my colleagues here at the center, published three pieces from his reporting in Costa Rica, and we put them under the title of A United Nations of Mass Illegal Immigration. It's on our website at cis.org. And the third of those articles is specifically about Haitians. And so that's, that was sort of the overlap here. And what I think is relevant for policymakers is that every Haitian migrant that Todd spoke to, who was making their way through Costa Rica, eventually then to get to Nicaragua and on through Mexico to the U.S. border, every single one of them was firmly established in Chile, in South America. There have been other Haitians who reporters have talked to who were firmly established in Brazil as well. So these are people who lived there for several years. They were in no way fleeing persecution or frankly even joblessness. Everyone he talked to had work, 
in Chile. In fact, one of them he spoke to said that life in Chile was a thousand times better than in Haiti. And so Todd asked them, so, you know, why come to the border now? What was the point? And he said, life in the United States would be a million times better than in Haiti. In other words, they were people clearly seeking the lifestyle upgrade and taking advantage of the Biden administration's weakness on immigration and unwillingness to enforce immigration laws. And the people he spoke to all knew about that. They didn't know the specific details of, you know, the number of the executive order, but they knew perfectly well what was going on. These are people who, you know, understand their own interests, and there are information networks that make sure people know what's what. And not one of these people is eligible for asylum, and yet the ones traveling with children especially will be led into the United States under Biden administration policies, virtually 100% guaranteed, and will end up living here for the rest of their lives. Maybe legally, maybe illegally, but they're never leaving. We are letting them in, and Biden administration policy is enabling this. And hopefully the assassination of the president in Haiti won't lead to even more people leaving, but there's a real possibility that will happen. And what this underlines is the need for a fundamental rethink of our asylum laws and our asylum policy. This asylum is the legal loophole that swallows the entirety of the rest of immigration law, because Congress can pass whatever rules it wants about numerical categories. You know, there are 60,000 siblings of U.S. citizens allowed in per year, all of that sort of thing. Requirements about proving that you're not reducing the wages of an American worker competing with you. All of that kind of stuff exists in the law. It's enormously complicated, and all of it is irrelevant if our asylum rules are too broad and administered in a lax and feckless way, which is what this administration specializes in. So hopefully, the situation broadly at the southern border, but maybe most specifically regarding these Haitians coming from fixed, established, relatively prosperous lives in South America, will shine a light on the dysfunction of our asylum system, not just the way it's administered, though, but even the, the way it's written, the way asylum law is written. And the bar needs to be much higher. It needs to be both written in law and also administered in a much narrower and more demanding fashion. That's it for this week on parsing immigration policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. All of our work is online at cis.org. Those of you who have a taste for snark and sarcasm can find me on Twitter at Mark S., as in Stephen, Mark S. Krikorian. And I hope you'll tune in next week. Thank you.